what price do we actually consider selling parts of our body? <laughs> I don't know yet. I really thought it I through. I think for me, it's for me, it's fifteen thousand. If we hit fifteen thousand, which I think is possible but unlikely, I give it like a five percent at the most chance. I will be yeah selling body parts. Probably. Kidney goes. Kidney goes <laughs> at fifteen k. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Welcome back to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, we speak to Dr. Jeff Ross. Dr. Ross is the managing director of Valeshire Capital Management. He manages a hedge fund and individual Valeshire client portfolios. Dr. Ross was an interventional and diagnostic radiologist until last year when he retired to run Valeshire full-time. Forgive us for the medical jabbering. It was too juicy to share our medical knowledge about UTIs and kidney removal with the good doctor. Dr. Ross brings a unique lens with which he views markets and how he leverages Bitcoin volatility for his favor while actively protecting his clients during Bitcoin's many dips and dumps. We are huge fans of the intellectual honesty that Dr. Ross brings to the space. It's not always going to be rosy, and it certainly isn't a popular move to point that out. Jeff is notorious on Twitter for enraging basement dwellers by suggesting that all may not be green candles for the next few months to a year for Bitcoin. While there are certainly individuals out there that can beat the market at times, we at BCB do not recommend you attempt to emulate Jeff's strategies for yourself. The best strategy for long-term wealth is to DCA over a long period of time. Do not get in your own way. The Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast is sponsored by CoinKite, makers of the Block Clock, the Open Dime, and the Cold Card. We highly recommend their products, and we have used Cold Card long before we ever had a sponsorship. Dan and I are in alignment that we will never sponsor or shill a product that is misaligned with our values. We can confidently say that CoinKite resonates with us completely. If you're looking for the best way to store your Bitcoin and aren't sure which hardware wallet to trust, we can confidently say that cold card is your best option. The cold card is the industry standard for security. Don't keep that precious Bitcoin on an exchange, put it on a cold card and rest easy knowing that you are protected from government seizure, hackers, and stupid mistakes. Be a sovereign individual and use a cold card. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. All right, folks, we have uh, the doctor on, Mr. Jeff Ross. Welcome to BCB. Thanks, guys. I'm really happy to be here. It's going to be a good conversation. We're stoked. I think, Josh, I think like we need to make this commitment off the top that we're just going to refer to him exclusively as the doctor. Like if nice. you use his first name, I'll scold you <laughs> and we'll kind of go from there. It is kind of like becoming your like, I don't know what you you're a doctor very recently. You just gave it up in what, 2021. But like it's yep. becoming like the your aura. It's online. like my persona. That's how I feel like it's like my stage presence when I go onto Twitter and stuff. And yeah, I, I thought about it. My wife and I joke about when I go to um, Bitcoin conference next month. And I don't know if you guys are going, but um, you know, I'm having a baby no. April 1st. So unfortunately oh, not. Shoot. Bullshit. Well, well, the next year, man. Yeah. Well, congrats in advance for the baby. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, but yeah, we, we joked about I should I should walk out wearing scrubs and a white coat and stuff. <laughs> you know, kind of li live up the role a little bit. But yeah, Bitcoin 2023. We're going full turnout gear. Got a page. <laughs> yeah. Got to go now. Page to the hospital. <laughs> let's awesome. let's start here, though. Let's pull on this thread because your road into investing in Bitcoin is really fascinating. Tell us more about you and then this road from being a, an MD to a hedge fund manager. Sure. OK, so I'll back way up and try to be quick about it. So back in the early to mid 90s, I was in college. I loved investing and I also wanted to be a doctor. So I had to choose. Uh, so I chose doctor and that put me on my pre-med route in college and you guys know how this stuff all works. So then I did my four years in med school and then I did six years of residency and fellowship uh, in Milwaukee. And then I got out of that and uh, in 2008 and we moved immediately, my family, my wife and my kids to uh, Colorado Springs. That's where we've been ever since. Um, 
I had completely basically forgotten about investing that whole time because I'm dirt poor, right? We were, you know, the poverty level. I, n- I never had free time. Uh, we, you know, I was on call every third night for years and years, and it was just a really tough life. Um, and then in about 2009, I, I remembered that I liked investing. And so I actually started a blog way back then, back when blogs were cool, uh, teaching people how to invest on their own. And I'm like, you guys don't need an advisor. Let me, I'll show you how to do it. So uh, uh, probably a half a year into doing that, I got picked up by a place called The Motley Fool. And then uh, also started writing for Seeking Alpha. And after uh, maybe a year or two of that, I had enough of an audience of people who kind of like my style. Uh, and I was kind of a value investing stock picker, uh, kind of focused on healthcare and technology stocks back then. Enough people were interested in me managing their money, and they're like, "Hey, you know, Doc, could you could you manage my money? I like I like your style." I'm like, "Oh no, I just do this for fun. This is just kind of my side gig." Um, but but you know, the more people that told me that, the more it kind of stuck into my head that mm. and maybe I could do this for a living. That would be pretty fun. So, anyways, about 2012, I started looking into if I could do anything in the investment space, what would I do? And I quickly came to I would be a hedge fund manager because. Hedge fund managers, basically, you can write your own script. You can do what you want. It's very right. different from mutual gloves funds or ETFs. Exactly. Gloves are off. If, if I want to go anywhere in the world and invest in anything I want to, I can do that as long as I have investors who believe in me, who understand that that's what I'm doing uh, and trust in me. And so, so long story short, by 2014, I had started my hedge fund called Bailshire Partners. And then about eight months later, I started um, the RIA side. So the separately managed account side of Bailshire. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. So that's what got me into investing. Um, got my MBA in there too in finance, um, which I wouldn't recommend, um, but it was a lot of fun. Way to elaborate um, on that. Why? Uh, it's just kind of a waste of time, honestly. It was it was cool, and it, and it like um it was fun, kind of like like reading a good book is fun. It was kind of fun like that, but like especially in terms of two things: how to run a business better. The best thing to do is just start your own business, right? <laughs> yep. You can read a, a book about how to be good podcasters, but the way to really learn is to start a podcast. Just do it. Right? You gotta just, just do, do it. it exactly. And I'm just kind of that mentality: just do it and figure it out and learn from my mistakes. And then the other thing is the investment courses. I mean, all they do is teach you just the stupidest things and these models that don't work at all. And um, so, anyways. So I'm all for it. I'm not hacking on it, but you know, you don't need to do it. If you want to learn how to be a good investor, just start investing and learn from your mistakes and stay humble. Um, so how did I get into Bitcoin? So back in 2016, as a fund manager, you know, I'm always looking for the best investments. I'm always trying to generate alpha for my clients. Obviously, crypto, the whole world of crypto caught my attention way back then. And what I saw was the sharp ratio of Bitcoin and then related assets. So sharp ratio is basically risk adjusted returns. So yes, Bitcoin is very volatile, but it's more volatile to the upside. And it's been unlike any other asset that we've ever seen before. So that drew me into it. Now, unfortunately, I was really stupid back then and I didn't have any idea what Bitcoin was. I hadn't gone down the proverbial we've rabbit hole there. yet. Yeah, exactly. So those are my stupid years. Um, So I'll preface this by saying I'm the class of 2016 for Bitcoin because that's when I bought my first Bitcoin, but I got held back till 2019. And that's my real class because (laughs) 2019, that's when I finally learned about Bitcoin and finally understood it. Did you get wrecked? I mean, I got wrecked. Okay. Elaborate a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So first I was brilliant, right? Like most crypto traders. Oh, I so, too. So, yeah. so I started with Bitcoin. I used to own it. You know, I was a rich doctor back then. I was buying just a bunch of Bitcoin and then like, oh, hey, what well, shiny object? Oh, Ethereum. What's that? Oh, you know, Litecoin. Well, that sounds cool. Yeah. And I just kind of did thing after thing after thing. And every time I... Um, bought one more of those those altcoins i was giving up my bitcoin to do that so i had you know my stash of bitcoin i'm like i'll take a piece and put it in ethereum i'll take a piece and put it and i just did that over and over and over again and by the end of 2017 i was brilliant i was up huge and i had no bitcoin no ethereum and i had all these little altcoins that had just gone to the moon right and so i was just thought i was just the smartest guy in the world and then came 2018, came the crash. I don't know if you guys were around back oh, yeah. then. Yeah, okay, we experienced okay. it. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah. So twenty, so 2018 tax time comes and I have no Bitcoin. I have all of my altcoins that I thought I was super smart. And, you know, this, and I knew, I knew the future, all those things went down 90 to 99%, right? So I'm left with nothing except a handful of worthless altcoins and a huge tax bill because I had, uh, I had, you know, I had sold, bought oh and gosh. sold on all this trading in 2017 Worst and I'm like, scenario. 
Yes, it sucked. So I learned a ton. So basically 2018 was kind of my, I'm just kind of ticked off. This was, that was so stupid. What was that? Went back to my normal. None of this was in Valeshire, by the way. I like to make that clear. I wasn't messing with my client's money. Okay. This was me on the side doing kind of learning about it. By 2019, I, you know, it was actually um, Preston Pish. I kind of went along with him. I, I had been listening to his podcast because he, like me, was a value investor and he discovered Bitcoin. So I kind of went along with him on the journey. Yep. And then the first book that did it was Safe's book, right? Safe Adina Moose, the Bitcoin standard. That's what really just threw me down the rabbit hole. And I, and I never looked back from there. And then I did whatever, 10,000 hours of studying since then. But it was 2019, the beginning where I finally understood it. And that's where I'm like, okay, this is for real. This is world changing technology. This is the, this is just simply better money. That's going to change the world for the better. So I started teaching my clients about that. So we went in, in, in Valeshire and our funds and my client accounts, we went from no Bitcoin exposure to just teeny little Bitcoin exposure, like half a percent, then to 1%. We just got off zero. Um, and I could only do it in a select number of counts because uh, a lot of my clients either weren't up for it or they just didn't have the trading privileges to do that kind of stuff. And I kind of kept pushing and educating and educating. And, and over time, we'd kind of build up the number of people who were up for Bitcoin. And then after about uh, nine to 12 months of doing that, now I had two two separate types of clients. I had my clients that had the full Valeshire portfolio plus Bitcoin, and then the other ones that had the full Valeshire uh, portfolios without Bitcoin. And I'd just, be, I'd say, look, and it's, I, I talked about this on Preston's podcast. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the old uh, drug commercials that said, this is your, this is your uh, brain. Oh yeah. Or the, and this is your brain on drugs and they crack an egg into a hot frying pan. And I, and I'd say this, this is your portfolio. This is your portfolio on Bitcoin look at the difference because people were so scared of Bitcoin and they thought, well, it's so volatile. I'm like, look at the difference in returns. It's just astonishing. And it's not more volatile. It's actually less volatile because they were non-correlated assets. Um, anyways, that's how I got Valeshire and my clients into it. Now we're uh, like uh, 90% of my clients have Bitcoin. There's still like a 10% that don't, that don't do it, but um, I've been blabbing. So I'll stop there. Oh no, all good stuff. And Dan and I were uh, certainly alongside you in 2017 just being degenerate traders. I mean, <laughs> I think the one that stands out, we've spoken about this before, was uh, Verge. I mean, something that we bought or I bought for a few cents, they went up to like 30 cents. And then by the time I could panic sell it, it was already down 50%, but still yep. came out on top. But it was just literally throwing darts at a wall. Yes. Yeah, people people don't think through these tax implications, especially no. like our demographic and and the kind of people we're influencing, say, at work. That you got you got to go back to to basics and explain what the implications are of moving shit coins around at the at the peak of a of a hype cycle because yep. like right. I, and I had to live that I I personally I had some understanding and this is where I scold myself even more I had understanding for the uniqueness of Bitcoin I had read Andreas Antonopoulos Internet of Money I I, I understood this could be the Internet of Value right so I had this half Bitcoin position and then I had this diversified crypto position on top of it I basically transposed my typical investing strategy into crypto. The issue being though, these things went parabolic. I mean, I had XRP going parabolic and yep. then you're, you're looking to scale out at the peak and you're just forgetting that's the short-term gains you're going to pay at the end of the year. And we're in that again, you know, four yep. years later, we're in that again. There's a lot of people that entered last year that did a ton of shit coining and they're feeling the tax pain right now. And that's just part of the journey, man. It's almost you want to steer people away, but you also sometimes want them to touch the stove because it's going to allow them to be safer in the future. Yeah, yeah. it's a great analogy. I've heard many people say that one of the worst thing you can do as an investor, especially brand new, and I think a lot of young people are in this boat right now, is to be ultra successful right off the bat because you mm. don't learn any lessons. You just think you're a genius, and that's how you get your hand slammed in the door. You know. Yeah, and, uh, we have fingers. a buddy. At, we have a buddy at work and. Josh remembers this, this thread on signal. I told him the worst thing that can happen. He made this decision. He knows the, the value of Bitcoin and that's where he should be focused. But he's like, you know, I'm just going to try this on the side. And I said, the worst thing that can happen for you right now is for this, this approach to succeed because mm-hmm. it's going to build these habits. You're going to want to do it again. You're going to want to roll the dice again, but Hey, such is yep. life. You got to learn. learn the school of stupid. Yeah. So on the same thread. <laughs> Um, we, we advocate for most people listening and our, ourselves for the most part, just dollar cost averaging into solid assets over a long period of time, because we're not running hedge funds and we're not, you know, on computer screens, eight hours a day, learning everything. I think, um, 
especially what you imparted to pitch on his podcast is that you kind of take a holistic view of the entire market and you kind of look at the macroeconomic themes. And um, I love the way that you explained that it's kind of like the weather. If it's wintertime or fall, you shouldn't be betting on summer days and vice versa. So could you walk us through how you how that mental model works for you, how you view this macroeconomic time period? And we're talking very short timeframes, like less than a year for people listening. We're not talking about long-term probabilities here. So with your macroeconomic view of what's going on right now, what is your short-term three to six month outlook on things? And how do nice. you, okay. sorry, and, right. and could you define risk on and risk off assets for our audience as well? Sure, sure. If I forget something, just just remind me. So first of all, I like to caveat whenever I talk about trading that I strongly recommend that people don't do what I do. I don't recommend trading. I think most people should think in terms, especially regarding Bitcoin, as long-term savers slash investors. Like you, you buy and hold, you dollar cost average, just what you guys are talking about. That is the key to success. And if you do that with Bitcoin, you will be fine. And I promise you. And I tell people that like if you have a 10-year time horizon and that's how you should approach Bitcoin, think of it like a retirement account that right. you're not going to touch for a minimum of 10 years. If you can do that, Bitcoin will take care of you. I, I practically promise you. you know, I pr practically guarantee 99.9% .9 that it will. I can't say 100% um, for legal reasons. Um, but anyways, so that so that's my individual advice, and that's what everybody should take home. What do I do as a trader now, and so how do I view things, and how does my trading model work? So yes, I, I start with a macro view of things, and 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 um, your point on that I brought up on Preston's uh, podcast, I think, is a good one. Where I, it's a good way to think about what is the macro view like? Is what is the what is the season that we're in? what are the macro conditions? So what do I look at? I look at um, what is GDP doing? So is the is the economy growing? Is it not growing? What is inflation doing? Is it accelerating or is it decelerating? Obviously, inflation is on the front page news of every, you know, every paper uh, every day these days because inflation is just totally out of control right now. Yeah. So 7.9% just came in today for February uh, as the CPI. That's super hot. It hasn't been that high since I think January of 1982. So yeah. we're talking like 40 and rates, years. Rates at that time were like 14% or something. Yes. So I mean, the disparity yeah. here is massive. And for people that don't understand what that means, it means you were saving in bonds back then. You were still creeping along, making a little return. These days, you're taking a massive bath if you're in yes. any, anything that's fixed income. Yeah, it's these, just destroy. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. These are, Dan. I mean, these are make your butthole pucker numbers here, <laughs> especially with where debt levels are at. And yes. I, it's just astonishing how few people recognize this. You right. Know? I will say, if it quick tangent, we're going to have about a hundred tangents. I can, I can tell. But so quick what tangent. What the show is, is all about. Exactly. So the Fed and the government, the the U.S. government, they love this situation. By the way, they will never admit this, but they love it because they have huge heaping massive amounts of unpayable debt right they would love nothing more to than to inflate it away the problem is when they inflate it away it's at the expense of the people so the people right. who own the currency Senior our money is inflating away meaning we're losing purchasing power day after day year after year everyone knows this quality of life goes down for every single person in the in america right now because the purchasing power of the dollar is rapidly diminishing. So groceries are more expensive. Healthcare is more expensive. While we're on a tangent, I want to just divert us onto a secondary here. So be if you're thinking about this like um, like a weatherman approach and you're thinking it's wintertime or we're in that kind of season, the thing that worries me about that kind of activity, and I'm sure you think about this a lot because this is the elephant in the room when it comes to that, the Fed can seemingly magically make it summer. Like if they come out today and they're like, you know what, um, we fucked up. And um, we're not raising rates. We're turning QE three, four, ten, infinity back on. It could be summertime overnight. Um, that's right. the thing that I think is going to catch people off guard. And situ. And I, I don't know. What? How do you view yes. that? Sure. Let me tell you my opinion. The Fed is in uh, a really tough spot right now. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place, like they never have been before. Yeah. Why? Because right now there are two things happening. The usual stuff that's happening is the markets are crashing because of this bad macroeconomic environment that I was talking about. Markets are crashing. The Fed, when they see markets crashing, they want to do accommodative policies. They want to do quantitative easing. They want to lower rates and they want to just flood the money with uh, flood the markets with liquidity. Right? They want to buy bonds. They want to buy mortgage-backed securities. But on the other hand, there's an even stronger pressure because inflation is running so hot. They have to do something about inflation. So they, they're really, really uh, strongly pressured to raise rates in order to try to battle this inflation. 
these are two massive things, two um, un- unmovable objects. Both are right. bad and they can only treat one or the other. They can't treat both. Yeah. So they're stuck right now. And so I think what's going to happen next week, um, uh, the, the markets are still saying there's probably going to be a 25 point uh, uh, rate hike of the federal funds rate. Um, a lot of people think they're not going to, but I think they're going to. Uh, absolutely. And I think the markets agree with that. And the the markets are going to continue to dislike that strongly. And that's why I think it's going to stay ugly for a while because they can't flip back over to accommodative because inflation's already out of control and they're actually going to worsen it if they if they try to get accommodated. That makes sense. So they're in a tough spot right now. Yeah, they yeah. are. There's no doubt about it. Um, let's define for our audience risk on versus risk off. So when you say risk on is going to sell off or vice versa, uh, define those terms for us and then where Bitcoin fits into that landscape. Sure. So risk on, basically, it's it's a broad term that a lot of fund managers use for what type of assets do well when um, when all of market, the market conditions are very favorable. So the Fed is just dumping money into the system. You know, the, the high growth stocks and things like that are just shooting to the moon. Tesla can do no wrong. Elon Musk can do no wrong. Those kind of stocks, so they tend to be very volatile. They tend to outperform the broad S&P 500. They have high beta, meaning so high volatility. And they also tend to generate more alpha in those situations, meaning they, they create profits above and beyond what the underlying market is doing. And so risk on assets in general, in general stocks, you can think of them as a risk on, but different stocks, different asset classes of stocks have different properties as well. But so broadly speaking, stocks, um, uh, Bitcoin and crypto, especially the rest of crypto tends to be very, very risk on anything that Bitcoin does. Crypto does like times 5x or 10x, as we all know, as we talked about. Um, So it's it's for better or for worse. So if you're in a good risk on environment, then those kind of things just go to the moon. But if you're in a risk off environment, like I believe we are in now, those things just crash and burn. uh, And and that's the time to get out of those things. So those are risk on assets in general. Um, Risk off assets tend to be safe haven assets. So the number one safe haven asset is the U.S. dollar. Um, U.S. treasuries uh, are kind of like number two and gold also has historically been a safe haven asset. So we can get into any of that too. I'll just quick get into why that is. When everybody panics and like say the last time we had this, uh, not counting how we are right now, the last uh, notable example that everybody remembers, March of 2020. So we had this very similar setup. It was like winter in my terminology. Things were looking ugly. The economy was slowing down. And then along comes COVID. And this always happens, by the way, in this type of environment. Whenever all of these red flags happen, there's there's always there's always some catalyst that people call it like a black swan event or whatever. I tell people all the time, I said, I don't know what it is, but some major thing is going to happen that's going to consume the news cycles in a bad way. And it's going to pull everything down. And people are going to blame that for why stocks are crashing. But it's actually because the environment was set up for this to happen. It's, It's really interesting. It's almost looking for a reason. Exactly. Exactly. It's super yeah. interesting to me because it's it just like it's like clockwork. This happens. Um, so what happens is when people panic, what do they do? Think about what you do when you're looking at your brokerage account and you see that, OK, it was up here at the end of you know this month and now it's down here. It just dropped 20 percent. Oh, shoot. And it dropped another 10 percent. Keeps dropping, dropping. What do you do? People flip out. They panic. They hit the sell button. They're selling their stocks. They sell their treasuries. They sell whatever, and they go to cash. So they're literally selling those assets and buying the U.S. dollar. That's why the U.S. dollar strengthens during these kind of environments. That's why it's considered a safe haven risk off asset. You're taking away your risk. You're going to safety. You're buying the U.S. dollar. So Bitcoin, and I'm sure we'll get into this, Bitcoin, like I said, is better money. It's the antithesis of the U.S. dollars, the antithesis of government fiat currency, and we can talk about why. At some point, people are going to realize, wait, why would I sell all of this stuff and buy a U.S. dollar when I could buy Bitcoin? Right. But but there's not many people yet that understand that Bitcoin is actually the ultimate safe haven asset because it's better money in every way. And so right now they still don't get that. They still treat it like it's basically a little tech stock. They're, they're, they think it's highly speculative. They think it's used by criminals. They think it wastes energy. All the stuff we hear, Elizabeth Warren say all that garbage. Um, it's just it's 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 still in the in the minds and the psyches of the general population. And so um, 
at some point in the future, and I hope it happens sooner than later, Bitcoin will be seen as the ultimate risk off asset as well. Uh, we're not there yet. So if we do have this kind of the, the continued uh, really poor macroeconomic environment, I think Bitcoin continues to decline in price and it sucks down lots of other risk asset uh, with it. I think for a lot of people, Jeff, this confuses new entrants to the space, right? They've read Layered Money by Nick Batia and the Bitcoin Standard and the bullish case for Bitcoin. They're three books in and they're like, why in the hell is Bitcoin in this risk on category? This is sort of the way I think through it. I, I mean, volatility and uncertainty go hand in hand. And when you look at this network, you have to appreciate the magnitude of onboarding that's going on in such a short period of time. I mean, we're, we're getting orders of magnitude more entrants, even in the last two years. It's not a percentage of current you know, people on the network. It's a multiple of current people on the network. There's so much uncertainty top to bottom, you know, it, big money included. And so I, I kind of love where you were going with that, where it, it really, time will increase certainty and understanding, and that will reduce volatility. But for the time being, this is and will continue to be a speculative asset because people haven't wrapped their heads around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Um, what I was going to add to that was it's about counterparty risk when when these risk on events happen. You know, um, Nick Batia does a great job of showing this pyramid of financial assets, and at the top traditionally is gold. And the reason for that is because there is no counterparty unless they're holding your gold for you. If you have physical gold in your hand, you have value. There's nobody that owes you that. You currently have it. So, Bitcoin is very similar to that. It's better than that actually because you actually physically can hold it. There are very few financial assets in the world that don't have counterparty risk. I mean, equities have counterparty risk. Bonds are literally counterparty risk to a government. Even cash is a counterparty instrument, as Russia just found out. Um, and and they're going out of their way lately to show people exactly why counterparty risk matters in Canada and uh, in the FX markets right now. It's billboard after billboard, man. It's It's compelling. Like If you don't understand what's going on after watching what's gone down in the last couple of years, you're just not paying attention. What do you think is the catalyst, Jeff, to move from risk on to risk off? And what size market cap? These are tough questions, but do you think this starts to to go down at? Honestly, I think it's just education. It's it's people who need to understand what Bitcoin really is, right? It's transitioning from the CNBC and Wall Street Journal and New York Times headlines that talk about the things we talk about. It's super speculative. It's used by criminals. It wastes energy. All the dumb things that we hear all the time. People have to go down the rabbit hole. They have to understand that Bitcoin is, like I said, the antithesis of the U.S. dollar. And why is that good? You know, they need to understand this. Like, oh, it's it's decentralized. Why is that important? Because when something is centralized, it means it's just sort of uh, controlled by a handful of select individuals that can sort of do what they want and they have their own vested interests. Oh, it's totally secure. Why does that matter? Well, it's perfectly scarce. Why does that matter? All of these different features that give Bitcoin its intrinsic value, these innate properties, they make it better money. And so until people understand that, and very few people do, right? I think we're in the just massive minority of people who understand that. Maybe 1% of the world actually gets it so far. Um, so we have a long ways to go. We're very early in the adoption phase. I will tell you that it's very reminiscent. I'm old enough to, to remember when the internet was coming around in the 90s. And I'm hearing the exact same types of people say the exact same types of things. They're Even like, the same what people. Is this? <laughs> yeah. What is this? Yeah, exactly. Even the same people. Krugman, exactly. Right. Like, what is this ever going to be used for? Oh, cool. I can send an uh, electronic mail to somebody. Well, that's great. You know, why would that ever be worth anything? And <laughs> And the same people that didn't have that vision to see where it's going to go, they just, they're going to deny it the whole way up and they're going to fight it and resist it and mock it and all that kind of stuff. And so Bitcoin's exactly the same. It's just going through this. It's clearly going through just a super fast adoption phase right now. I think it's actually going to speed up over the coming years, but people still, they still look at it as this just crazy, unknowable, um, flash in the pan kind of thing. You know, people still keep calling it tulips. Again, you know, you know, all these all these different analogies that people use, it just shows they have no understanding. And so the more people know Bitcoin, the more people will own Bitcoin. And that's when it becomes the risk off asset. It is getting harder and harder to take these people seriously. Like we yes. try to have a ton of grace for it because the three of us have all been in that position where, where we know nothing, not only about Bitcoin, but about the broader economic framework. If you know nothing about this stuff, 
this is really far out of reach. Some random magic internet money. But honestly, now whatever, we're in four and a half, five years in, it's the landscape has changed so dramatically. I mean, for God's sake, the White House just put out a fucking executive order this week on crypto. Regardless yeah. of what that means, if you Which think this is a total nothing, cl- if way. you think Bitcoin is a total joke, you got you got to wake up, man. I mean, we're we're pa- it's almost like having these discussions again is getting more and more exhausting um, because it's it's so incredibly obvious. There's news coming out week after week after week, and and, and so I'm like, it, it, at this point, if you're not at least paying attention to this, man, I don't know what to tell you. Right. People are just stupid, right? I mean, and that's how people are. And that's okay, right? I mean, we're 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 early adopters, then we're going to come to the the you know, the the early phase where where lots of people the early majority phase. Half the people though are, you know, late adopters, late phase people, late they they they're just going they're they're always late to everything because they're scared of everything. They want to be told by somebody that it's okay to yeah. do this. They want to hold somebody to hold their hand and say it's okay, you can buy a little bit of Bitcoin. And they're, they're going to wait. So I think we're still years and years away from those types of people getting on board with this and being comfortable. The yeah. financial world is full of jargon, too, that I think intimidates the hell out of people. I mean, mm-hmm. if anyone anyone listens to uh, Powell or any of the previous Fed chairs talk for 10 minutes, they're totally confused and have no idea what they're talking about. And I would argue that's purposeful. But even when you start cracking open anything on like a typical finance website, most people don't understand the terms, the jargon, and they're just inundated with it. And they just decide, oh, I'm too stupid to understand this. There's just not a lot of places where you can go get very down to earth, very honest information that isn't just full of pontificating and trying to sound smart. You know, it's like reading, um, it's like reading scientific papers. Like half of these things are written just so that they can show off to their, you know, academic friends. They're not really written for anyone to truly understand what's going on. The, the other thing is fragile, poorly constructed frameworks invariably get more complicated over time. Like an example is if you tell a lie, you've got to tell another lie to make up for it and another lie yeah. to make up for it. And six lies in, you don't even know why it started to begin with. That's a little bit of the way I view the fiat system is it's, it's endlessly complex because it's so poorly constructed. Sure. Um, obviously, there'll be layers on Bitcoin if we move to a Bitcoin standard, but I think it will be, uh, the structure will be, uh, far more secure just because of sounder fundamentals than it's the current right. system. <laughs> when you said that, for some reason, what came to mind is you think of evolutionary, like anim- some animals that just look stupid, like a platypus. <laughs> like, how did that thing happen? It's because it was literally just jammed together with random shit for a couple million <laughs> like, years until it was a platypus. Like, and a how bunch did of other jo- shit like how did- that just died. How did Josh happen? He looks <laughs> I don't like know. a piece of shit. Like, right. I, mean, I was wondering that too. <laughs> yeah. People can't see him, Jeff, but he is one ugly critter, isn't he? What, at what, what size uh, market cap? Wh- when do you think this happens? When, what size? These can be you know, broad strokes here. When do you think this will start to change from risk on to, to risk off and be the safe haven? When will people move into Bitcoin instead of USD in the climates we're in currently? Yeah, I do think that um, 10 trillion is kind of a big milestone for Bitcoin. So that's kind of about the the market cap of gold, you know, 10 to 12 trillion ish. Uh, and it depends. People argue about the monetary premium of it versus the, the utility of it and all that kind of stuff. I think 10 trillion just really will solidify Bitcoin as like, look, this is a legit asset. This is here to stay for sure. It's not going away. It's starting to now overtake the market cap of like lots of foreign currencies as well. Um, so that's when it will happen. I will say it's probably going to happen last in the U.S., right? Because the U.S. dollar mm. is so strong yeah. still. It's it's the strongest of all the terrible fiat currencies. So it, it, it's going to be around for the longest. I think that people in other countries, like, for example, Russia, Ukraine right now, or in South America or in Africa, uh, places in the Middle East, some Eastern European nations, they are learning the value of Bitcoin as well already. And they're going to pull on El Salvador at some point and they're going to be like, look, this is way better than our currency. We need to take this seriously. We need to consider this you know, legal tender uh, and start using this on a regular basis. And so I think smaller com- countries are going to fall in line sooner, and that's going to help grow the validity uh, and the size of the Bitcoin network for sure. So that's that's already happening, and I think that continues to happen um, and at a faster rate throughout this decade. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it was Venezuela that asked the uh, New York Fed for their gold back, and they were suing them for it back, and they ended up saying, um, no, no, you're not getting your gold back. <laughs> so like a lot of these little small 
South American countries that are just getting screwed eventually. And I'm sure sooner than later, they're going to realize like, why do I, why do I want to have any counterparty at all? Like, I don't need one. This is a world where you don't have to have one anymore. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a whole different parallel financial system that they can take part of now. And so it's never, this has never happened before. It's new to everybody. So it's just really fun to watch the implementation, right? We got the base layer down. So now we're, we're seeing the financialization and the additional layers being built on top of it. There's going to be tons of mistake. It's going to be really tumultuous along the way, but it's just fun. And what we can count on is for sure network adoption is going to continue to increase and I think increase at a more rapid rate. Um, and as that network adoption increases, according to Metcalf's law, so does the intrinsic value of that network. Whatever that is, it's hard to put a price tag on it, but we do know that it's up and to the right over time. And so uh, I just think if you have a long enough time horizon, all you have to do is sit and wait and hold Bitcoin and and you're going to do very well in the new world order for sure. This is where I think a lot of people on Twitter misunderstand what you do for a living. And we're obviously not privy to it completely, but we have some understanding. Like you have 26-year-olds living in their parents' house wondering, why in the hell would he be shorting marathon or whatever? And it's like, this guy's a hedge fund manager with client demands. He's handling volatility. That's a lot of what I'm sure you do for a living. I'm guessing maybe you know more about that specific company. I haven't studied it in depth, but I'm guessing you would say you don't think that $25 is the peak for marathon, but you have to have you know, these positions that are going to keep your portfolio sound and solid based on client demand. Educate our audience a little bit on what it's like to be in your shoes and how that that does impact the fact that you are trading and moving money around in the short midterm, even though maybe someone with a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon, you certainly wouldn't advise they do the same thing. Right. So that's a good question. And and so at its most fundamental level, what I am, and it took me actually a few years to kind of figure this out. I'm really a risk manager or a volatility manager for my clients. I'm trying to make the most money with as little volatility as possible. Why? Because all people, all clients, everybody says that they're fine with volatility. They're okay. They understand that markets go up and down, but they hate it when markets go down. They cannot stand looking at their portfolios at the end of the month and being like, I'm down whatever percent, you know, it's terrible. It feels terrible. What's wrong? What are you doing? So I, I literally spend my time kind of counseling people like that's okay. Volatility only equals risk in academia. As as fund managers, as investors, you need to take advantage of that volatility. When you see something's down, that's when you buy it, you know, and kind of go through that kind of thing. So I've spent a lot of time going as a fund manager. How do I manage volatility? How do I profit from the market going up, which everybody profits when the market's going up, just like we all did in 2017 with with the altcoins, right? You could throw a dart at anything and it would go up 10x in a couple months. That's just that that's easy to make money in a bull market. How do you make money when the market's choppy sideways? How do you make money if the markets are going down? That's what I spend. I literally stay awake at night trying to figure out systems for how do I make money in this type of environment right now, right? Bitcoin's down about 45% from uh, its November 8th high. I'm very pro Bitcoin. And like I said, at the very beginning, I recommend that everybody just buy Bitcoin. You need to understand, know thyself. That's what the ancient Greeks used to say. Know thyself. Are you a trader or are you an investor and a saver? Are you a long-term person or are you short-term? If you're a long-term saver investor, you should love it, love it, love it when the price of Bitcoin goes down. You should be cheering for it to go down right now. You want it to drop 50%, right? Because if you have a hundred bucks and you want to buy some Satoshis, you get twice the Satoshis if the price of Bitcoin drops 50% today. So you should be absolutely cheering for that to happen. Those same people yell at me when I tell them the price is going down because I think it's a bad macro environment right now. They get super mad at me and they tell me I'm driving the price down as a fund manager, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And I'm like, are you a trader? Are you an investor? If you're a trader, yes, this is a good time. And I think it's going to continue to be a good time in the coming weeks and possibly months where risk on assets are going to do poorly. The macro environment is absolutely terrible. The economy is decelerating. The Fed is tightening. Inflation is super high, although I think it's peaking and it's probably going to start coming down slowly in the next couple of months. It is a terrible environment for risk on assets right now. 
Bitcoin is still seen by the majority of market participants as a risk on asset. So it's probably not going to do very well. I can't see the future. I can't guarantee that's going to happen, but it's probably going to happen because that's exactly what happened in March of 2020. It's exactly what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018. It's just what it does. Um, and if you're into those altcoin things, they're going to do even worse. And so getting back to Marathon. So I like Marathon, Marathon Digital. It's a, it's a Bitcoin miner. I love public miners. I love the miners in general, right? They're the defense line. They're the military of Bitcoin. They defend it. They create the new Bitcoin. They protect the network. They're awesome. So yes, in the in the long term, I'm very supportive. I'm I'm actually shorting all of these things that I'm usually long for most right. of the time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so that's what my trading system does. All all it is is my system. I, I think of what's the macro environment. What is the data showing? What do my momentum indicators show? They show downtrend. What does my volatility range show? It shows that this is a good time to be short these kind of things to be profitable for my Veilshire clients. I'm trying to make money. So like right now today. As we're talking, what's the date today? It is March 10th. 10th. It's the market's almost closed. The S&P 500 is down about 0.5%. NASDAQ's down 1%. Bitcoin's down about 5.5%. My fund is up 0.3%, right? That's what I do. So I try to make money even though the markets are down. At some point, we're going to hit a bottom. We're going to switch and it's going to flip back over to bullish and I'll flip back to bullish. And these very same things I'm shorting now, I don't have any hard feelings against them. I'm not trying yep. to grind, you know, drive them to zero and they won't go to zero. I promise you, these are how markets work. There's always a buyer and there's always a seller. And so I'll put so I'm going to put on buying pressure once I think we've bottomed and then we're going to shoot up and hopefully make more profits for the, my Veilshire clients. That's yeah. what I do as a risk manager. And this is where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but if someone's listening to you right now and they, well, what I'm in this for 10 or 15, 20 years, I'm just going to DCA, DCA in bi-weekly. You're telling those people to buy the very same things you're shorting right now if yes. their investment timeline is that long. That's where I think yes. people get confused on Twitter. They don't understand what you're doing for a living. The timeframes are different. People are freaking out and it's like, chill. You don't, you don't, you're not, in his world. You don't get it. Exactly. Know? And it's not a, and it's not a contradiction. And that's what people don't understand. You have to decide, are you a trader? Or are you an investor? Traders should be selling or shorting this stuff. Buyers should be buying long-term investors and savers should be buying. That's traders. Um, so long-term investors, they sell into strength and they buy into weakness. So as Bitcoin, the price ramps higher, the OG are selling in, they're selling to the traders who are buying into that strength. Then it peaks and then the market goes down and the OG guys, the long-termers, they start buying as the price goes down and the traders are selling to them. That's just how markets work. That's the nature of things. So you need to understand what team you're on and then understand your timeframes. And that's how you, you're successful, whether you're a trader or an investor. Is there a reason that you choose mining stocks to short and not some other avenue? Oh, I short, I short lots of things. So I'm not picking on miners. I, I pick on things that, first of all, I never short Bitcoin. I want to make that super clear. Like I just in principle don't short Bitcoin and I never sell my Bitcoin ever. So um, miners are good ones, right? Because they have, they have higher beta relative to Bitcoin, meaning if they Bitcoin goes down, miners go down further. Right. That's why I do them. But I, what I love shorting even more than miners, uh, exchanges, crypto exchanges, Coinbase. I love shorting Coinbase. I love it, uh, Coinbase. a tweet. Exactly. A fun uh, tweet that I said, and, I, and I, I very much agree with this, when I feel like Bitcoin is going to go down in price in the coming days or months, I love to short Ethereum because Ethereum does what Bitcoin does, but it's like times two or three or four. And so I You're love not cheating on your wife. You know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I will, if I'm, if I'm feeling nervous about what Bitcoin, the price is going to do, I'll short Ethereum all day. And it's been very successful doing that. Um, so that's, so basically where can I generate more profits without shorting Bitcoin itself is how I look at it. Gotcha. One, one question I have, um, is, so here's a scenario. I think a, a lot of people are likely in, um, we're younger, but I'm sure we have listeners that are older common scenario for a fireman that's retired or about to retire. They let's just paint an example. They're about to collect their pension, which is probably going to implode anyways. They've got $1.1 $1. million <laughs> in a 457, right? They've built up this nest egg for 30 years. They've got $1.1 million in a 457, maybe a little more in a couple of Roth IRAs or something like that. They're conflicted between all these options, right? We were going to be in an age of debasement and probably the unwind of a long-term debt cycle. So holding traditional risk-off assets like fixed income is probably not going to perform. 
let's say this person's not super financially savvy and they just kind of want some advice on, hey, what should I do with this thing? Sort of an all weather going to survive 10, 20, 30 years. What's your answer to that person to get the upside while also not weathering 70% Bitcoin cutoffs? Sure. So what I tell people, because I get this question a lot from these, this same kind of person, you know, these people that have their 401ks or 403bs or 457s, whatever. So what do I do? They hear me talk and they say, wow, you know, Dr. Jeff is super bearish. He thinks that things are going to continue to go down. I'm, I was told that you always just dollar cost average and you're supposed to just sit and ride through, but I don't really want to go through a 50% drawdown if I can help it. What I tell people now is just raise cash. Like if you have a 401k or something with your um, mutual funds or index funds or whatever options you have, maybe just cut all of them in half, sell half of all of those and just sit in 50% cash and then 50% stocks and just wait it out. Because so, so the way I'm looking at it this year, by the way, I think most of 2022 actually is going to be kind of a garbage year. It's going to be not good performance, especially for risk on assets. I do think we get a reprieve. We can talk about that too. But in a few months, uh, kind of third quarter should be okay, actually. And I think we're going to get an upswing in lots of these things that have been hammered down. But then I think it, get, it gets ugly again. So fourth quarter and then first quarter of 2023 might also be kind of ugly. So if I were concerned about what to do right here, I would just raise cash. Cash is the best way to um, just kind of sit and watch from the sidelines while the markets crumble. Um, and so even if it's even if it's a little bit, if you don't want to do 50%, right. do 20%. You know, just pick some number and stick with it, and then your losses won't be nearly as great. And you're still in it. You know, you still have 50% or 70% or whatever of your stocks in case I'm wrong. Um, but if it goes down and I'm right, you'll be glad that you're, you're holding a higher cash position. Um, what if somebody says, Hey, I want to enter positions today that I'm not going to look at for 10 years. And I'm in this, I'm in this boat where I, I don't want to weather 70% drawdowns. How much Bitcoin, what's a good starting point for somebody in terms of total portfolio Bitcoin allocation? What are you doing for some of your clients that are like, Hey, I'm 68 years old. I don't want to ride my portfolio all the way into the dumps, but I want to be able to capture this thing in case it turns the other way. Yeah. So first of all, the way I do it is really different from how most investment advisors and financial planners do it, right? I run my my separately managed accounts, my client accounts, like I run my hedge fund. So I'm pretty aggressive. When 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 the when my indicators are telling me it's time to be aggressive, we hammer it. We put the pedal down. We go. We sh- we try to shoot the moon and shoot the lights out. You know. When we get, when it's my indicators say it's time to be defensive, we get super defensive and we like, we'll sit in cash. Like back in February, 2020, we were, we were like 80% cash, 10% treasuries, 10% gold. And we just watched the market crash from the sidelines and it was fantastic. So that's the kind of thing I do as a manager. It's very different from what most fund, uh, like investment advisors do and financial planners do. They're very passive, right? They, they have a 60, 40 portfolio. They just say, yeah, put every month, right. put whatever percentage, blah, blah, blah. Regarding Bitcoin, the uh, fundamental truth is the more you know Bitcoin, the more you own Bitcoin. So when you don't Amen. understand it and you, you're still scared of it, put 1%. Don't go more than that because it will freak you out. Yes. You will not be able to handle the volatility and you're going to sell it the second it drops 50% and you're going to lose 50% of your money that you put into it. Don't do that. So it's, so start very, very small, get comfortable with it, and then start learning. Start listening to this podcast. Start listening to Press and Pish's podcast. Go read Safedine's book, The Bitcoin Standard learn about Bitcoin. And then the more you know it, the more you'll start owning it. And then you can start getting into higher allocations, 5%, 10%, 15%. And then you don't mind the volatility so much because you know that that's an expected, um, that's the price you pay for admission. It's the price you pay for life-changing gains. Right. This is sort of the way I look at it. So if you're 25 years old, I don't think active management makes sense. But if you're 70 years old, and you are freaked out of this volatility and you can't weather those storms, there is a time and place, even if you're a Bitcoiner, to consider active management. I know this is going to rub people the wrong way. I, I sent this tweet out. You know, sometimes short form gets the eyes. And I was like, if your financial advisor doesn't like Bitcoin, leave your financial advisor, right? Mm-hmm. But there are people, I mean, you're, we've talked to Andy Edstrom, Jim Kreider, yourself. We know other people. If you are freaked out of the volatility or you can't weather it, but you want Bitcoin exposure, maybe it is time to call up an active manager that understands Bitcoin and the broader environment and pay them a percent and a half to handle this for you. If you 
if you don't care about the volatility and you're you're just ready to ride the bull, then ride the bull. But I I, I think there is still a time and place at that life stage for people to manage money, which is going to rub a lot of Bitcoin Twitter the wrong way. But it's just this is how it is. Definitely, you got it. You got to figure out what your sleep at night amount is, right? So if 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 the amount of Bitcoin you own is keeping you awake, if you're freaking out and checking at two in the morning the price of Bitcoin, you own too much. You don't understand it, and you own too much. So so decrease your position. So yeah, Josh, you're gonna say something? Yeah, I was gonna ask you kind of the opposite question actually. So let's play the opposite scenario. You're 25, 30 years old. Um, you're comfortable with volatility, at least you say you are. How, what percentage of a portfolio would you, if someone was just came to you and was like, I want the most aggressive portfolio that's going to perform massively in 20 to 30 years, how would you position that portfolio? Yeah. Well, so again, I, I'm really active. So like right now, right, we're actually short um, Bitcoin related things. We have zero, we have negative um, if, you, if you factor in, you know, crypto exchanges and things like that. It just it depends. If you were just going to say passively hold an account, and I said how much should you put in? What I what I would recommend for aggressive people, I'd put fifty percent of my portfolio. I think if you think there's at least a fifty percent chance that Bitcoin continues to do what it's going to do, and that it will be successful, and that it's going to, you know, I, I mean, I think it's reasonable to think Bitcoin's going to go ten x in the next four years. I think that's actually very reasonable uh, based on past history and how much it's come down recently. Um, if you think there's even a 50% chance, put 50% of your portfolio in there and, um, and you, you can, you can stomach the volatility. I think if you're a little older than it, and you're more conservative minded, then you decrease that amount. And so, but even my, like my conservative clients, um, will, will go up to 20% Bitcoin exposure. Um, as long as I don't have a lot of red flags and most, by the way, most of the time, this is a tough year, but most of the time the markets are generally giving me green lights. Like you want to be long, you want to be invested heavily for most of your career. Um, and then there are just seasons where there's like a, a few months or a few quarters at a time where you just want to get cautious. So we're in one of those right now, but most of the time you'd be just fine having a very large exposure to Bitcoin. What are the signs you're going to be looking for, Jeff, this year or beyond that we're moving from risk off back to risk on? What are you paying attention to? Yeah, so, uh, well, I'm waiting for a probable, I think what we're going to have, I don't think we just keep grinding lower. I think at some point we're going to have uh, everybody's panicked sphincter tightening capitulation event, right? So that's what has happened the last two times, March 2020, fourth quarter 2018, Bitcoin dropped 50%. Um, and in 2018, by the way, it had already come from its high of about 20,000 at the end of 2017, all the way down to about 6,500. That's like a 65% drop. Yep. And then it dropped another 50%. Like I remember in, it well. over, yeah, yeah, it was <laughs> yeah, not we pleasant. Li- we lived it. <laughs> exactly. But that's when you want to literally back up the truck. You want to sell your kidneys, sell your carpet, sell your chairs and buy as much Bitcoin as you can. Right. So that's what I'm hoping for. Honestly, it's not, you know, uh, masochistic, but that's what I want. Can, is, um, is, can you help us sell one of our kidneys? If we, I mean, can you perform that <laughs> procedure? I, yeah, yeah. I could, I have a setup in my garage. We'll just lay it across the table and right. yeah, yeah. what are they going uh, for? Just for people out there, we will be whoring. Uh, Josh and I will be out whoring if, uh, we have that kind of cutoff. So <laughs> Send us a DM. <clears throat> we need to put together some kind of structure on like wh- what what price do we actually consider selling parts of our body? I don't know yet. I've really thought. It I think through. for me it's for me it's fifteen thousand. If we hit fifteen thousand, which I think is possible but unlikely, I give it like a five percent at the most chance. I will be yeah selling body parts. Probably. Kidney goes. Kidney <laughs> yep. goes at fifteen k. Maybe a few of the kids. Too. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah. my dog. I got a great dog. She's worth something. Um. I, on the medical, this is, this is, we're changing subjects. We talked about this a little bit though, before we clicked record, how do you feel like all your years in medicine have informed your perspective as an investor? That's a good question. I think, um, I think about this kind of thing a lot too. First of all, I think doctors are basically human engineers, right? We're trying to figure out how bodies work and disease processes and how to fix the problem. And so, and I come from like a line of engineers too in my family. And so I I also attract a lot of engineers because I have a real systematic approach to how I invest. It's very non-emotional, even though I'm emotional, I get hyped up and all that kind of stuff. My system is non-emotional. I just like when it says sell, I sell. When it says buy, I buy it. And I've spent eight years developing it. Um, So 
especially and then and then on top of it i was something called an interventional radiologist which is uh, image guided minimally invasive surgery and then a diagnostic radiologist which is the guy who reads the you know ct scans and mris and ultrasounds and x-rays and all that kind of stuff what i love doing is is looking at all of the different details and then synthesizing it and coming up with the diagnosis of what's wrong. So, right, you guys, you find somebody out on the scene, they're in a car accident, they've had trauma, they're, you know, they're out, you put an IV in, you intubate them, you do all this stuff and you stabilize them, you bring them in to the hospital, they ship them to the CT department, they get a, you know, a head to tail uh, CT scan. And then I'm the guy that has to figure out what's wrong from there and what what's going on on the inside. That's how I treat investing too. I, I literally, I look at all of these different things. I think, what's the economy doing? What is inflation doing? How do different asset classes respond in these different scenarios? And then I throw in like, okay, what is the momentum indicators telling me? What are What is volatility saying? Blah, 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 blah. And then I come up with, okay, well, this would make a good investment right now. This would be a good investment. And that's how I go through my whole process. It's just real systematic like that. Um, and then if I think things like maybe we've gained uh, more than I think we should on some investment, I trim profits and I just go through this whole cycle all the time when it comes to investing and trading. I'm turning more and more into a trader, which is really weird because I started as just a fanatical long-term Warren Buffett-esque uh, investor. You buy and hold, you never sell. I like to say buy well and rarely sell. Right. But I, I buy and sell all the time now. And, and because when you have these choppy and downward uh, moving markets, it, it's fine if you're okay losing 40, 50, 60%, but if you're not and you actually want to profit, then you kind of have to be a trader uh, as well. So yeah, I, I don't think even that know if that answered your question. I think it's indicative too of just this whole fiat system that you know is such a Frankenstein that there's no, I mean, value investing has gotten kicked in the balls solidly for the last 15 years. And anyone that started out with that mindset has either stuck to their guns and just their returns have been abysmal or they've mm -hmm. just flipped over to this momentum strategy along with, you know, risk on assets. So that's the only way you're making it these days. And then you better be careful. Yeah, you're right on. And that's actually, that's what flipped me. I, you know, from 2014 to 2018, I was basically a stock picking value investor. <laughs> like my results suck. This is terrible. Like I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I can't keep up with these growth stocks and what's going on. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out why. And I basically, Remember, I was on a podcast way back then with the Stansberry guys, um, Dan Ferris, and he's a he's a big value investor. I'm like, you know what? I just don't think value investing works in an environment where the the denominator, the U.S. dollar, is such just a, a clown world economics. Like it's it's it, it doesn't it doesn't work as an indicator anymore because you can't trust the dollar. You can't. It's debasing so quickly. You can't really use that in all of your equations to get a to get um, actual workable, investable equations anymore. And so, basically, the companies that have figured out the game to borrow as much money as possible and then to just generate as much revenue as possible and grow to the moon, even though they don't actually make profits, those things start trading at 10, 20, 40, 50 times sales price to sales. These these were like. Um, conditions that were unheard of 10, 20 years ago. You would have never, ever, ever considered buying a company that was higher than like a, a price to sales ratio of 10. Right. Um, in the last couple of years, we, we see companies go like these, like software as a service companies, cloud companies, all these tech companies, they, ha they have these price to sales ratios of 50 or 60 or 70. They don't even have earnings. So you can't even look at the classical kind of indicators. They don't have free cash flow. All those things, they don't even matter anymore. And if you're some, you know, chump over here buying these, you know, value investments that Warren Buffett thinks yeah. is a good idea, you're just getting destroyed. You're going out of business and you're, you're losing clients. You're reading Benjamin Graham's book and you're going, I did, I put all this work into this book that was a miserable read and a slow slog and I'm getting nothing for it. Like, yeah, right. You're losing clients and you're losing money and it's just a miserable way to live. So. I, I like uh, to double back to your medical background. I, I like where you're going with that. I do think you got to draw on whatever perspective and skill set you have. And I think there is an aspect of the medical profession that makes you sort of an unemotional, matter of fact, almost algorithmic thinker. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you're, I'm sure you're bullish health, but when uh, someone's fucked up, you're bearish health and right. uh, you need to fix it. <laughs> um, I think, I think what a lot of our audience probably doesn't understand is, we're far, far from doctors, but primarily Josh and I are medical professionals. We're paramedics and about 70% of our call volume is medical. And um, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you want or what you feel. Like if you're 
deathly allergic to bees and you get stung and you're in anaphylactic shock, you're going to need epi and an IV and a lot of fluid and you're going to need to get intubated or else you're going to, you're going to die. It doesn't matter what you think or feel or want. And I think that's what I appreciate about your tone on Twitter is you're just calling balls and strikes as it's coming across the plate. And, um, yeah, based on what you just said a second ago, I'm sure some of that comes from sort of your objective lens being a radiologist. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, some overlap that I had with you guys is you guys probably come across, um, like trauma scenes if somebody's in a car accident and they're, they're unconscious and their blood pressure is whatever, 70 over 30, right. And you start an IV and they're barely hanging on. I would, I was the guy. So as an interventional radiologist, I'd put a catheter in their groin into their femoral artery. And then I would go through and try to figure out where they're bleeding from their, their, you know, their internal bleeding, internal hemorrhaging. And I would go in, put catheters in and then embolize that artery, block off that artery and stop the bleeding. And to your point, like I could sit there and be like, oh, I hope it goes okay for you. You know, like yeah, hope, yeah. hope you get better and it's, you should get better because most people get better if they're laying down with their eyes closed, you know, yeah. but you have, sometimes life sucks and you have to intervene and you have to be bearish on their health. Right. And, and so you, you have to do the necessary things in order to, to help people. And that's kind of how I look at my portfolio too, is, is when the markets, you know, when it's winter, when it's cold weather, when it looks like terrible, you know, storm clouds are coming and, and we're going to have a, a really rough slog of it for the next couple of months, I can just be like, oh, well, I guess it's going to be a tough couple of months or I can kind of try to actively manage through that and profit through that. So this is different approaches. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, um, it's cool to talk to people that have spent time at the end of the care chain, like because we it's funny as a, as a medic, like we have family members that just think we, you know, they have some problem with their toe and they're like, tell me about gout. It's like, I don't know anything, man. I mean, our, our, we're only, we're keep you alive for 10 to 20 minutes. That's yeah, like that's awesome. what we're trained to do. But Dan in terms of like actually UTI, Dan can smell a UTI from like oh, two houses away. Mile away. He's <laughs> a professional. Away. Oh yeah. Yeah. He knows sepsis when he smells it. Professional yeah, awesome. old lady picker uppers as well. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's true. A honed skill. That is a good um, skill. Hey, can I real quick tangent before either of you ask that question? Just thinking of uh, UTIs, urinary tract infections. My favorite, one of my favorite quotes from residency was, "If I ain't me, check my pee." And that's when old people are confused. Like they, a lot of times, it's because they have a urinary tract infection. So, anyways, I hadn't that thought of that true. for about twenty years. Yeah, it's definitely a good one to know. <laughs> uh, what actually, what risks do you think are real? We'll end on this front. What? Um, what could happen to the Bitcoin protocol network, broader landscape that would actually scare you about the long-term value proposition of Bitcoin? You know, the only thing that scares me that I think, so I've thought a lot about this, right? I, I used to be very concerned in 2018, 2019, um, that the government was going to try to step in. And, sh- and I think there was talk even back in like the Trump administration, they were pretty anti-Bitcoin for a while. And there were people in the, you know, the higher ranks that were talking, uh, you know, very negatively about it. There's a lot of statists out there um, yeah. that hate Bitcoin that think, you know, it's undermining U.S. hegemony and it's it's undermining the U.S. dollar. And it it kind of is. Yeah, so I don't, sure I, they're smart people and they understand what Bitcoin is and, and where it's going to go. I think it's inevitable. Um I don't worry about anything like that anymore. To me, it's just it's it's just inevitable, Bitcoin is. The only thing that would make me nervous is if I saw a long-term um, decline in network users. So so if people started losing interest in it, which I can't even imagine that happening, but there's it's possible. So that's the only thing. Like everything else that people talk about. Um, the government shutting it down, solar flares, um, you know, a- anything that could possibly happen, um, uh, quantum computing, all these kind of things are solvable issues that really smart people already know about and they're going to, you know, block everything. Or are they going to print more than 21 million? No. You know, all these things, none of that will happen. The only thing is if, if I saw on on-chain analytics that people were losing interest in Bitcoin, that would make me nervous. I don't think that's going to happen, but that would make me nervous. Could um one one last question for you. This is an easy one. Do you have a book recommendation? Just any book, anything you like. What's uh, something you uh, thought was a really great book? Yeah. Well, um, so Bitcoin related. Are we talking or anything? Anything you want. I'm going to give you multiple. So okay. the Bitcoin standard is mandatory reading. Safedine's book. You got to read that for sure. Yep. Um. Um. Oh shoot. I'm blanking on it. I'll come back to it because I'm blanking on it right now. Ray Dalio's book, 
the changing, the changing world, world order. order. Yeah, yes. you guys know this one. Yeah, so I just both, we both yeah, just that's read a it. great book. a good. I love, and that's what I tell people. People ask me all the time, hey, I want to become a better macro investor. What do I recommend? I say, read anything by Ray Dalio. And also try to listen to anything, uh, any interview with Stan Drunkenmiller. Stan Drunkenmiller is a master at taking macro and turning it into actionable investment advice. He he literally just spews gold, like spews Bitcoin, spews sats yeah. all over because it's so valuable what he does. This is super random, but... Um, I actually really like sci-fi from the uh, from in college. I used to love reading the Wheel of Time series. Um, I, I love just I like getting sci-fi. lost in like fantasy out. stuff. So the Wheel of Time, Amazon just um, started a, a TV series of it, and it's terrible. It's nothing like the books, <laughs> and I like was Foundation. super angry. That's also exactly. Terrible. So I decided I'm going to start reading those books again. So I just started. There are 14 books. They're each like 700 pages long. It's super long, but it's totally worth it if you like that kind of thing. And I'm just totally blanking. Oh, VJ Boyapati's book. Um, Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Thank you. Thank you. The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Also a great book. So that and the Bitcoin Standard, I think, are foundational Bitcoin books. Layered Money is is up there as well. For sure. Awesome. Thanks for all the book recommendations. Love them. Sure. Doctor, uh, appreciated your time. Seriously enjoyed every minute of this one. Thanks so much. It was great. You guys are awesome. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.